This is Not Quite Dead, a gal pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies, but sometimes we really just like to keep it shallow. I'm your host, Kate. I'm Megan. Get ready for all the spoilers. So, Megan, because you didn't realize that this movie took place in 1979. (laughs) You just outed me, man. Did you just think that the husband was like a raging misogynist? Wait, what? Wait, which husband? Um, Paul. Old, old man. Main old man. Old man. Main old man. Old man one. This movie is full of old men. But old man number one, Paul, is appalled that the friend visiting them, May, is driving her boyfriend's car. And he does not want her to drive his car when she and his wife go into town. I'm so glad we opened with this commentary because I spent the whole movie thinking, wow, what a nice guy he is. What a great couple. I hope they make it. The car thing, I kind of just wrote off as she uses crystals and talks to spirits and is clairvoyant or so she says. And so he's kind of like, not sure on her that's kind of how I interpreted that okay okay I don't know why I could not figure out that this movie took place in the 70s Kate I could not for the life of me tell you how I didn't catch that detail I'm guessing I was just thrown off by like the ruralness of the area and it's winter and everyone's just kind of wearing winter clothes I don't know man I didn't catch that I'm dying because I was watching this and the opening to the movie, We Are Still Here, the movie that we're talking about, uh, came out in 2015. The opening of this movie has some very extended establishing shots of this car driving along a rural New England highway, 70s model car. There's an extended shot of the interior of the house which is so dated it's got like an old black and white tv and like that crocheted like 70s blankets and hey i mean there are people that don't update their furniture or their cars my great aunt and uncle still have a 60 chevy nova pristine condition it just wouldn't throw me to see those types of cars out in rural areas. Like I I just, it totally went over my head, I think because of my own background. The same with the interior. I, I was it. like, oh, people just don't update. Like they're just old. That happens. That's so funny. Oh man. I actually like this movie. I'm, I'm pretty excited to get into it. I liked it too. And even saying that, I am astounded at how well received this movie was by critics. It has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. When it came out in 2015, it was on Rolling Stone's top 10 horror movies of the year. It was on a bunch of lists, just really widely acclaimed as being a great horror movie. I had never heard of it until we were looking to fill out our slate with more ghost movies. Same. And now that you tell me all of that, I'm kind of like, it wasn't that good. That's how I feel too. Yeah. (laughs) Like I liked it, but I wouldn't put it on a top anything list, really. That's so funny. It is funny. This was directed by Ted Jogagon. He has a ton of writing and production credits under his belt, all for B, C, and D level horror movies. Like stuff, I mean, I could rattle off names, but unless you're deep, deep, deep into horror movies, you probably haven't heard or seen any of these. I certainly haven't. Also in the opening credits, really quickly, it was called out that this is based on a concept by Richard Griffin. Now, I have no idea who Richard Griffin is or if he's any good, but I really appreciated that he got credit for his idea. It's 
hard to find out some information about this movie because it had an incredibly limited release. It was an independent film that came out on the indie film circuit. I think it premiered at Sundance and had a very limited run in these kind of independent film festivals and then had a very small release in Japan as well. There's no budget information that you can find about it because it was on the film festival circuit. There's also no gross information on it. And then Netflix picked it up as a special release. And so we'll probably never know how much money this movie made. I'm sure there's estimates out there, but it is a critically acclaimed indie horror movie. And I did not recognize anybody from the cast. Did you? The only person I could pick out was Larry Fassenden, and he was in Dead Don't Die, and he played the hotel owner, or I guess the motel owner. Right. Okay. That was it. Yeah. You know, I couldn't recognize anybody either, and this movie felt low budget, but in Mm -hmm. a good way. Like, it felt authentic. These people felt like real characters, and it was a pretty simple plot. How much was the Saw budget? Do we remember that? I think the first Saw movie was right around a million dollars. Yeah, I feel like this movie couldn't have been more than a, a couple hundred grand. I mean, it just, aside from the actors, I don't know how much they were paid. There's really nothing. I will say the ghost effects have that burned kind of quality to them, but it's about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very like lived in feeling movie. And very believable. I think that's the benefit, right, of like a shoestring budget is like it really relies on the actors. And I think that they they did a really good job. We'll get into some plot holes, but overall, not a bad movie. Pretty solid. Should we get to the plot so that we can talk through some of it? Anne and Paul Sacchetti have moved to a very small rural New England town after the tragic death of their son Bobby in a car accident. As they're settling into this new home, they are starting to experience some potentially supernatural things happening that cause Anne to invite her friend to come stay with them because they are spiritualists and she wants to see if they can do a seance because she believes that this is maybe Bobby trying to speak to her and her husband from the afterlife with all of the weirdness of the local townspeople, the history of the house, and just the types of spirits and spiritual activity that we're seeing in the house. Um, It is very unlikely that it is a benevolent ghost of her dead son. Man, I wish I could find a spooky old house that costs next to nothing because of superstition. I know. It is really kicked off in this movie as they're moving into this new house. And you want to be like settling into a new house and excited for it because it's a fresh start. It's something exciting to look forward to. But they're really doing this because of a really tragic event that happened in their lives. And then it's just compounded on by how weird the circumstances around this house. They move into a brand new house far, far away to, I guess, escape the memory of their son, which seems really drastic. I can't imagine moving my entire life, but I don't have a son. The mother is really concerned with where all of the photos are going to end up. She still very clearly is reeling over her son's death. And right away, she starts noticing some weird signs that make it seem like he is present in the house. And that's what kicks off our ghost story, is this mother's grief. When I think about horror movies centering around grief, I think of Hereditary. It's so forefront in my mind because you see the absolute disintegration of a family around this tragic event. And they process it so differently than how the characters in this movie do. And in some ways, I almost feel like this is more realistic 
I mean, Hereditary has got a lot of other stuff going on for it, but I feel like there's a lot more emotion going on in their circumstance. So it really seems like Anne here is trying to make the best of their situation. This is me totally reading between the lines in this story, but I think if it were up to Anne, she probably would not have moved to a new house. She's looking for her son, Bobby, everywhere, right? Like she's, like you said, concerned about the photos. She's going through his belongings as soon as they're there and unpacking. She thinks she can hear him or that there's some spirit of his trying to speak to her. She is so tied to this idea that her son is still present around them. Which is really very sad because the movie spends the entire time telling her, no, it's not your son. It's a freaking monster. It's a terrible spirit in this house that she's actually feeling and it's tricking her into thinking that it's her son. We see a picture that he hated broken, the glass broken. We see his baseball bouncing down the stairs. I think she just sort of generally feels his presence, or at least she thinks she does. Right. It's interesting how her grief is making her more tuned in to what is actually happening in some ways because it's making her more open to the idea that there are spirits versus her husband, Paul, who is not so like transparent about his grief in the same way. And he's super skeptical. Like you said, it may be sort of like a parallel. Their grief sort of matches their belief in what's happening. He's very skeptical towards the whole thing, but he's also very kind to his wife about it. She wants to invite her clairvoyant friend and spend the weekend with them and see if she can communicate with her son. And he goes with it. He's like, yeah, I know this means something to you. Let's do it. Which I thought was very sweet. And it's not usually something we see in these types of movies. You you see a lot of pushback. It was interesting to see them taking this like emotional openness as a a metaphor or like a parallel to how open you are to the spirit world in general. Because then when we see their friends, they're so open and like over the top in some ways. And that like really turns off the husband. But May is so tuned into just the energy of the house that she's like, there's something malignant in this house. Like she's so immediately aware of like what is actually happening in the house. I like that through line of like, oh yeah, your kind of EQ is like kind of equal to how much you're communing with ghosts in this movie. I like that too because it gave legitimacy to what's happening in the movie. You know, the the ghosts are real, the townspeople are actually awful, and she actually can feel a presence. Going back to the husband, he flips a switch really quickly when he experiences some sort of presence outside the bedroom. But he has like a weird vision and experience with this ghostly spirit. And the next day he's like, yup, I saw something. Mm -hmm. I thought that was such an interesting comparison to, as you brought up earlier, the father character in Hereditary. He does not believe in that shit till the very bitter end. He is not about it at all. But this guy... He's open to it. He ends up becoming open to this idea that there's their son or or something is going on in this house. When comparing the way Paul flips, it feels like because he becomes open to this spirit, he can also open himself up to finishing out his grief. The very end of the movie, he does see his son and he smiles. I thought it was so interesting. It almost like gives me goosebumps just like thinking about it, how he's looking down into the basement and says, hi, Bobby. And you don't, we don't as an audience see Bobby. We just know that this is like a threshold that the father has crossed into now where he can now see his son as a ghost. I feel kind of bad for May and Jacob because they lose their son. 
and they don't get to grieve for him. I know. I was very happy for this couple that they kind of had that resolution, but it was such a bummer to lose that other group because I thought they were very nice. I, I actually liked all the characters in this movie, the good characters. I know. I feel like the movie wants to subvert your expectations of these like hippies coming in because you think that they're just going to be like silly and doing their seance or whatever. But no, they're very in tune with the grief that's happening with his family. And May is so in tune with the spirit of the house and the spirit of her loved ones that when her son is killed in the house she's like immediately like struck in the restaurant and feels like something has happened she has like a kind of like psychic damage from her son being killed yeah again adding to the believability that she actually can see and feel things that aren't there Mm -hmm. this group goes to town at some point and goes to a bar and we meet all the weird townspeople, which is really a topic of its very own super weird vibe from this place. When they walk into the bar, everybody stares at them. Yeah, let's talk about these townies. What is going on with them? I was just thinking over and over while watching this movie, at what point is your environment around you, including, you know, your new weird neighbors, enough to make you want to leave the new house that you bought? Like, what's the line? It seems like they didn't spend any time in this town before moving in, because wouldn't they have experience that already. Dave, he's the neighbor that comes over with his wife to quote unquote welcome them to the neighborhood. He says that the town is always aware when somebody moves into this house. I mean, and we know why, but it seems like nobody in town knew that these folks were moving in. That tells me that these two didn't do any research. They didn't check out the town. What's it going to be like living here? What are the townsfolk like? Kate, you moved to Boulder. Mm. What would you have done if you had walked into a bar and the entire bar stopped what it was doing and just stared at you and told you to go sit out back? No, absolutely not. I mean, crazy. I had visited Boulder twice before moving here and spent some time on the Boulder subreddit, like just making sure it wasn't totally crazy. I mean, that's the benefit we have today, right? Is like that we can actually look things up. Whereas in the 70s, it seemed like it was still like moving on a hope and a prayer. How do they even find this place? That's what I wonder is like, are these townspeople knowing that they basically have to feed this house every 30 years with new sacrifices? Are they fishing for people? If so, you'd think they'd be a little nicer. I wrote that question down. I don't understand why everybody is so rude to them if they want them in the house. It seems like you would welcome them with open arms and bring them goodies and try to be friendly and make them feel at home and not want them to leave so that they can be murdered. Right. So Dave, old man number three, evil old man in this movie, drops by with his wife Kat to welcome the Satchets into town. And basically his version of welcoming them is telling them that the house that they've bought was built to be a funeral home in the 1800s where the original residents, the Dagmars, instead of burying the bodies, they actually sold the bodies and buried empty caskets. Where did they sell the bodies to? Some real casual racism. This is a quote from the movie. This is not me saying this. Yeah, this isn't Kate. The quote was that they sold the bodies to the Orientals in Boston for chop suey. So rude. So rude. What a weird thing to say to your new neighbors. I guess since now I know it was the 70s, it's fine. I was going to say, like, it makes it like a little less worse now that you know it was 1979 and not like 2015, right? It's just the time. It makes a little more sense that way. See, this is the dude I had feminist issues with, Dave, who doesn't let his wife speak and murders her for trying to help out the new people that just moved in. The townspeople are 
so openly hostile towards them. I mean, probably because they know that they're going to die very soon. So they're like, don't come out of your house. Stay in your house where you can get murdered. Don't go out on the town with your friends. And I found the weird townspeople to be perplexing in some ways and a good way to ramp up tension in the movie. I mean, I was not expecting Dave to just kill a waitress. That I didn't understand either. That seemed to have nothing to do with the plot. Dave, as soon as he showed up at the front door, though, I mean, I knew something was off because he said it's been a certain amount of time since it's had fresh souls. Like, mm-hmm. who says it that way? Who says, I know. who refers to people as fresh souls? He's a super creep. Like, you can tell. And then when he leaves, he says, oh, well, it's still Dagmar's house. That's also very creepy. Dagmar's dead, yo. It should not be his house. What does that mean? How did you feel about the house killing all of these townspeople at the end of the movie? Kate, are we getting into plot holes? Because I've got a ton of plot holes for you. All right. Let's segue away from weird townspeople into plot holes because I think that we have so many. All right. So my question about this house is why is it killing all of these random people if it needs a family? It starts off with the teens, May and Jacob's son and his girlfriend. It kills them. Why does it kill them? They're not the family that's there. It didn't go after the people who just moved in yet. Why did it go after them first? And then why does it kill the townspeople at the end? What does that have to do with anything? It felt like the message was supposed to be that the Dagmars somehow understood that Anne and Paul were good people and that they deserved grace and to live. It is absolutely not clear to me why May, Jacob, their son and his girlfriend get brutally murdered. (laughs) Even with that explanation, I don't get it because every family that moves in is probably nice. That's so subjective. I have not seen anything in this movie that would make me think that the couple that moved in is any better than any other family I've seen. Sure, they're nice, but so are a lot of people. So were May and Jacob. I think that The house's explanation for killing the townspeople is because these townspeople are complicit in trying to bring in the Satchets to kill them. And so it's like, okay, we're going to just like level everybody. We're not going to participate in this anymore because these are like truly good people who don't deserve this. But like that makes it even worse that the other four die. Then they die. So isn't that the family that the house needs? You would think, yeah. At the end, Dave is like angry and he's yelling at the spirit of Dagmar. Like, you know, you need to kill these people because the thing actually killing people is not the house. It's Dagmar. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this Dagmar spirit is compelled to murder people in the house. I don't know why. He seems jealous for a minute that other people are in his house, but that has nothing to do with the curse. It doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. I don't think that there's a good answer for it. This is a good movie, but it's real easy to pick holes into it. One of the things that I always have a huge complaint about is what is the actual physical sphere of influence that spirits or curses have because the land the house is on is cursed. There's an evil spirit and that evil spirit is like working through the Dagmars, working with the Dagmars and it's very, very tied to the house. But when the girlfriend is frantically driving away, so far she's away. driving down the highway trying to get out of this town, suddenly the spirit of one of the Dagmars is in the back seat 
and like five finger death punches through her chest. Really good death scenes, by the way, in this movie. It was a great death scene, but I hated it. I hated it because we're now no longer tied to the house. I hate it when movies Mm -hmm. try to establish rules and then break their own rules later. I'm like, oh, just like then don't have any rules. Just go after family in the town. Why do you even need them in the house? Right. The Dagmars could have just killed everyone in the bar. Another item that came up that confused me was that the throughout the movie, we're told that the son is not in the house. He's not in the house. The clairvoyant friend knows he's not there. Throughout the movie, we're repeatedly told that Bobby is not in the house. But at the end, the father sees him and we hear his voice. And I don't understand why that changed or what does that mean that nobody else was aware that Bobby was in the house? I wanted to make it work. And so my rationalization of it was that Bobby, his spirit was maybe following his parents and that once they were in the house, that everything else going on with the Dagmars and the curse was just so much more powerful than Bobby that he was like being stifled by it. Why do you think May said that the spirits are pretending to be Bobby then? Do you think she just didn't know? Yeah. That statement then challenges her legitimacy. And so I wasn't sure what to think about this. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I don't think it's clear. Like, I don't think that it makes sense to me why the spirits of the house would take an interest in impersonating Bobby. Like, it doesn't seem like there's really a reason for the spirits to try and coax the parents into going into parts of the house they shouldn't. It seems like the ghosts are just so interested in killing people more so than toying with them. Right. And Dave is concerned because these two are still alive, but it's been two weeks. The house should have offed them by now. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. I'm still sitting here trying to make sense of this, and I just don't think I can because I'm wondering if Bobby is considered part of the family. Like, is him being there part of that sacrifice, or is that the reason why they aren't enough that because their son is already dead? I just have all these questions about the rules behind this 30-year sacrifice. I know. I feel like there's like a context clue that we're missing. If there was additional context on like, oh, the Dagmars had to watch their only daughter die first, you know, something that was just like, oh, the Dagmars have sympathy for these parents. If that's the case, it is so, so, so deeply buried that we're just like trying to justify it. Yeah. It feels like something we're trying to make up. Well, my last plot problem takes us back to the weird townies so we can wrap that convo up but why did dave kill the waitress what was the point of that yeah i was like okay a who was he expecting to open the door why did he have a gun ready was he expecting the new family to be at the bar still and just shoot them but it was closed right And then the bartender was just like, oh, I wouldn't have sent the new waitress if I'd known it was going to be you. And I was like. Like she knew he was going to murder somebody. (laughs) That was one of those things where I was like, I think that this is just bad writing. Like I think that they're trying to establish that Dave is not just weird, but also willing to kill people arbitrarily. And I think it was just done really badly. I think it's a plot hole, but like a plot hole that they tried to write in with purpose, but they did not do a good job on. Exactly. And that drove me nuts about this movie because otherwise, aside from some of these plot holes, it was good. I I still Mm -hmm. enjoyed watching it, which sounds weird, especially when you've heard us pick apart other movies on our podcast. We still like this movie. It's just got some bugs. Just these plot holes, man. Like the more I think about them, the more I'm like, oh, this wasn't very good. Although there are 
what two types of movies there's like that saying there's like a seven o'clock movies versus nine o'clock movies seven o'clock movie I don't know I haven't heard that saying okay so a seven o'clock movie is one that you go see and then afterwards you go out to dinner or go out for drinks and you talk about the movie afterwards Mm. A nine o'clock movie is like a popcorn movie where you're going and you just like watch it, you enjoy it, and then you go home and go to bed and you never think about it again. That's this movie. You asked earlier, how does this couple even know about this house? Like, where did they find it? Actually, if you stay for the credits, they go through a series of newspaper headlines that gives you like a brief history of this town and all the shitty people in it and what they have done over the years. And again, this should have clued me in to the fact that this was a 70s movie. (laughs) I digress. There is actually at the very end of all of the newspaper highlights, you see the ad in the newspaper for the home. And it even says hasn't been lived in for 30 years it's just a fixer upper out in the rural country so I'm assuming that's the advertisement that they saw and who wouldn't want to check it out but this town man first of all in 1859 there's a ton of shit that goes wrong we see the first newspaper article where they've constructed the mortuary and two months later all the livestock are dead and there's a crop blight The next headline is where we learn that there was a fire at the mortuary and the Dagmars disappear. And so this sort of ties in with their death by townsfolk, obviously covered up by this fire at the mortuary. It has a trope of like Indian burial grounds kind of thing where it's like, oh, you've built a house or you've built something on top of what should be sacred ground. And then it's just cursed ground forever until that thing is removed and then 30 years after that they experience drought and shortly thereafter they're out of the drought so we know that family has been killed 30 years after that we're in 1949 and the rivers are filled with black liquid so this house isn't even just attacking the town like directly it's not killing people it's messing with their shit it's like messing with their livelihoods and once the family in the house goes missing, less than a week later, the rivers are clear. This town. What weirds me out about them the most is why don't they move? What is so great about this town that you need to stay here and deal with this every 30 years? Dave, for example, old man number three, he is got to be what, in his 60s, 70s? So he's been through two of these cycles as a conscious adult. Right. This would be like his second one, probably. Yeah, this would be his second. So he would remember all those black rivers. Right, he would. But then maybe he would have thought, oh, well, all we had to do was kill four random people and everything was fine again. I don't know. It's very strange. I don't know how you justify it. The town doesn't seem that great. It seems fine. (laughs) Right. And if the house is only attacking the town, okay, just leave it. The house can can sit there in tantrum all by itself. I love the idea of like a petulant little house. It's like, mm, get these people out of me. One of my favorite things to keep track of this season so far, it has been what are our hauntings? What are our signs of ghosts? There's a lot in this movie. There's some pretty standard ones like things being knocked over sounds around the house a creaky house and then there's some really bizarre ones like how hot it is in the basement yes I love that they call a repairman in because they're like oh there's got to be something with the boiler or the electricity because it's hot and it smell the house smells like smoke I really like how specific some of these ghostly sigils are right i mean because that's the fate of the house it it burned down with the family inside and that's what they are experiencing the spirit has woken up and with it comes all of this bad memory 
we start seeing pretty early on in the movie ghostly figures that are blackened. They look very like burned. And another plot hole, one of these figures attacks the repairman in the basement. Why does he get attacked? He doesn't live there. (laughs) He has nothing to do with He doesn't have a family there. He probably doesn't even live in the town. And for what it's worth, neither were uh, the son and the girlfriend that came to visit. So they're all in the same confusing boat. One of the signs of the ghost that I thought was very creepy, very, very clever was after the son and the girlfriend are killed, the ghosts reset the house. They put everything back where it was. And you don't see this. It's just, oh, the drinks that they were drinking out of are now clean and back where they were. The record player has stopped. Their things are put away. You know, like everything about them has just been erased so that the parents have no idea that they're even in the house. And the parents never find them. I was waiting for them to go into the cellar and find the sun and see the car on the way back from town or something. But they don't see any of it. And it never gets addressed, which I thought was really sad. I know. They never got to say goodbye. The most that you get is when old man number two is taken over during the seance. And as the ghost of Dagmar is speaking through him, he he says a couple of times, like, I killed him and his whore or whatever. Like, they keep calling the girlfriend a whore. And I was like, what is this? Like, where is this coming from? Why are you slut shaming? Rude. Although I did think it was really funny the first thing she wanted to do after feeling thoroughly creeped out by the house. As soon as she knew the parents weren't home, she wanted to make out with him. I just thought that was very funny. Yeah. It's very on brand for like these 19-year-olds. Oh my God, they're 19. I mean, they look like they're 30, but that's another issue. It's the 70s. (laughs) Everyone looked old because they all smoked. We have not talked about the actual deaths, though. The deaths are amazing. And I was so surprised because what ghost kills anything like this? I know. I feel like one thing that makes this movie really stand out is that the ghosts are very physical. They are like solid beings and they use that force when they're killing people. When they kill the teenage son, they gouge his eyes out. Oh my God. It was so rough. It's really intense. (laughs) That made me jump. The girlfriend, she gets like what, a punch through the head? Is that what happens to her or is it through the chest? It goes like through her chest while she's driving, yeah. And it's not spiritual looking at all. It looks like somebody's hand is just bursting through somebody's chest. There's no CGI. There's no spirit smoke floating around. This ghost thing has manifested into a burnt person and wreaks havoc, has superhuman strength. My favorite death, though, was Dave when he gets his head ripped apart. Yeah, it's gory. So gross. Like when all of the townspeople are getting absolutely wrecked at the end of this movie by the Dagmars, it's just very bloody. They're like running all over the place, getting attacked by these ghosts. And the couple that actually live there come out unscathed somehow. Other ways that we see the ghost's presence is internal. We see the dad having nightmares at night. I was surprised that the nightmares were enough to make him acknowledge that there were ghosts or something in the house. Oh, I know. It would take so much more than that for me to flip a switch in my brain. The fact that that freaked him out, I thought was interesting for his character. Yeah, it's like it pushed him over the edge. And I really thought It would have taken a lot more. Yeah. But that's part of what I liked about this guy also is that he was actually very kind and open and a little thoughtful about this whole thing. I love at the end when for the first time you can very clearly hear Bobby, their son, telling them to get out. And the mom says, that was Bobby. Did you hear it? It was Bobby. And the dad says, yeah, he's telling us to get the fuck out. So we got to (laughs) go. He's so practical. I love this guy. Yeah, it was great. 
Okay, that's the first time we hear Bobby, right? Yeah. Because they mention it earlier, and I was like, I didn't hear him. I, I watch everything it. with subtitles, and I know that you don't. Yes, that's that true. That was the first time we actually heard Bobby. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. I like how they bring the audience in at the same time as the dad. We're sort of with the dad in this. We are. We're the skeptics. We're all the dad in this movie. So this movie, at the end, when they do confirm that Bobby has been there with them this whole time, it seems to posit that there are bad spirits like the Dagmars and good spirits like Bobby. What did you think about that? I thought the Dagmars were unique because they are not actually there of their own free will. They're there because of a curse. They're there because they are, for some reason, beholden to the town to murder people in order to protect the town. I don't know why they choose to do this every 30 years. The town killed them. But for some reason, they do. I assume that pisses them off, that they have to do this. In my head, something is making them do this because I don't understand what their motive would be. The father continually says, get out of my house, get out of my house. Did the curse put that in his head? The way I explain this is that they are cursed and Bobby is not. I would imagine that most ghosts in this universe would be like Bobby unless they happen to be cursed. What did you think? Yeah, I try and think of a world that this movie takes place in where you could just run into ghosts all the time because there's so many ghosts. If any person can become a ghost, then there would just be so many ghosts. It'd be so crowded. Oh my gosh. Like in Ghost Story, how like life just starts over. You'd run out of space. I think that that makes sense. I think that they're coming through in different forms because one is cursed and the other just died normally. So that makes sense. At least they're together. And I'm assuming that this family can now just stay in this house because there's no more curse, at least for the next 30 years, right? I know. Where do you go from here? Like, what are they going to do? There's no town anymore. They can't even go get a drink. Everyone's dead. I know. How do you get your money back, right? Who's going to buy this house? It smells like smoke, full of ghosts. There's no town. <laughs> what a disaster for them. Well, Kate, there was a line in this movie that inspired me to come up with a game for us. And you're going to laugh because I should have known this. But it was when Paul said something about Maui Wowie. Just add more Maui Wowie. And I went, oh, what's that? Is that a thing that I'm not familiar with? And I looked it up, immediately realized, oh, it's a pot strain. I should have known this. This game is going to test us on our pot knowledge, our band knowledge, but also there is a curveball. Some of these are completely made up. They are nothing. And so we have many ways to trip ourselves up here. Kate, are you ready to showcase your pot and band prowess? You know, I was until that curveball was put in here because I feel like pot names are so out there that it's going to be really hard to tell which ones are made up versus which are pot names. <laughs> Especially since Zach is the one making these up. They're going to be really weird. So we have Accidental Tourist is the first one. And I know what I'm going to guess. I'm going to assume he's not going to throw a curveball with the first one. So maybe that's the wrong approach, but I think I'm going to go with band name. I'm going with band name as well. And it's funny that we're going to metagame this because we know it's Zach. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who is familiar with Zach on our show, he does like to get a little wacky. So this is a game right up his alley. The second entry is Crystal Salad. That one's got to be made up. You think it's made up? Ugh. I do. I was going to say pot, but now, no, I'm going to stick with my gut. I'm just going to go with pot. I'm going on pure instinct. <laughs> <laughs> Milk and Cookies is the next one. 
I am so, so sure I've heard this before. I have to believe this is pot. Yeah, I mean, me too. Thematically, <laughs> it makes sense. That sounds really good, actually. A big plate of cookies with some milk and some pot. I could go for that right now. <laughs> sounds like a happy hour to me. <laughs> All right. Narsty with a silent G. I'm inclined to think this is made up. I think that this one is a band because it feels like a reggae band. <laughs> I feel like it's maybe cutting like the difference between pot and a band name. All right. The next one is Uncle Monk. Isn't Monk a strain of something? You know, sure. I don't <laughs> Probably. know, man. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with band because I think I might have just made that up. Okay, I'm going with pot on this one. I'm glad that we have so many different ones. Every time we have a different answer, I'm like, fuck, Kate's going to get this right. <laughs> no, there's no way. Canned purple. Okay. Like, I know there's like a strain of purple, right? The, the word purple. So I'm going to go with pot. I think that this one's made up. <sighs> yeah. It could be a total curveball just to throw me off. I feel like Zach knows. You know, I feel like he's like really leaning into our biases with some of these names. The next one is so silly. It's <laughs> Applewood Good Times. I think this is like a band. I have to believe this is like some kind of like Americana banjo wash tub type of <laughs> band. <laughs> I thought this one was a band too because I thought it was like too stupid to be made up. Exactly. Fatal Microbes. I wanted to say band, but now I feel like I have too many bands. <laughs> I haven't had a made up one in a while. <laughs> I'm going to go with made up just to keep my numbers even. I don't think that someone would name their pot fatal microbes. Yeah, that sounds bad. I'm going to say band because I think it sounds kind of punk. All right. Second to last one is Sparklemore, which makes me think of Macklemore. So I'm going to go with band. <laughs> I love the reasoning. <laughs> Sparkle more. I'm going to guess is made up. The last one is Black Dahlia. I mean, it's the name of a book. Uh, I think that there's like an old like emo or screamo band, the Black Dahlia murder or something. I am going to go left field and call it a pot strain though. All right. I think I'm going to stick with band. Because it seems like something a band would name themselves after. I think so. I think that I probably made a mistake by going with pot, but I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. I hope you all have your answers to this quiz. We have ours. Let's go through and see what we got right and wrong. Accidental tourist. Guess what? We were both wrong. It's pot. Oh, no. That's an inauspicious beginning for us. <laughs> All right. Crystal salad. Crystal salad. I really wanted this to be pot, but it's made up. It's not real. <gasps> oh. You got you it. You know, this one it would also be a good drag queen name, I feel. Okay. Milk and cookies. It is a band. It's not pot. No. He played us. That was a good choice. Oh, my gosh. We're doing really badly. <laughs> I mean, so far you're up on, you got me by one, so you're doing all right. All right, Narsty. Narsty, we were both wrong again. It was pot. I, I don't believe Zach. I think that Zach is maybe wrong on all of these. <laughs> he probably made him up. We'll have to link to all of these strains and bands on the blog, so make sure you guys check out the blog. Uh, when you're done with this quiz. Uncle Monk. I got it right. Uncle Monk is a band. Wahoo. Nice. Yay. Finally, I'm on the board. Canned Purple. Yes, Zach played me. It is made up. He knew I would think it was pot, but it's not. It's nothing. <laughs> okay, Applewood Good Times. This is the fan favorite, and it is made up. 
It is nothing. <gasps> oh my gosh. How did he come this up with that? This is the worst we've ever done on a quiz. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Fatal Microbes. Banned. Kate got it. Oh, I got another one. Oh my gosh. Good that it wasn't pot. Seems like not a good way to market yourself. Sparkle more. It's a band. My logic oh, nice. is not flawed. If it sounds like Macklemore, <laughs> it's probably a band. And last on our list is Black Dahlia Switcheroo. It is pot, not a band. All right. So tallying up our scores, I got four out of 10, which is failing. 40%. And Megan, Megan got two out of 10. <laughs> I am closer to Jason X than Kate is. It's true. Oh my gosh. I, at this point, both of us did worse than random chance, right? <laughs> I think that's true. We should have gotten five, right? No, maybe three. It's, it's hard with those curveballs thrown in there. <laughs> Who knows what we're I supposed know, to have. Right? <laughs> But hope you guys had fun with this quiz. So if you have some time to kill with a hippie set of friends of yours, maybe check out our blog, pull up the quiz, and see if you can test their knowledge. I think that we critiqued this movie a lot, but I do think that it was out of love. Yeah, I think I just wanted better for this movie, but I really did enjoy watching it. I thought... The characters were really sympathetic, which is so rare. I usually don't give a shit who dies in a movie, but I really wanted this couple to make it and I wanted their friends to make it. I do think this movie is worth a watch. Maybe not worth digging into, but we had fun doing it anyway. I think that this movie was a good watch. It was a good horror movie. It had great acting. I would recommend it, but I think that it's okay to watch it, take it as it is, and then maybe have a nightcap and then go to bed. It's a nine o'clock movie. Well, that wraps it up for our second ghost movie. In two weeks, we'll be back with Barbarian, which is a newer movie and one that we saw last year and couldn't resist talking about this year. This was not quite dead. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at NotQuiteDeadPodcast and on Twitter at NQD underscore podcast. Follow our blog for bonus content at NotQuiteDeadPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And happy watching.